We continue our study in Matthew's Gospel this morning. Be in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 27. If you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 813, I think. All right? Okay. Good. I just looked at it. So if you're, if you're new to the Bible, the big number is the chapter. The smaller numbers are the verses. And so when we say chapter 8, we're looking for that big number 8. And we say verse 23, you're looking for that tiny number before the verse. Chapter 8, verse 23 of Matthew's Gospel. And I will ask you to stand as we read God's word together. We stand last time. Stand with Christ in you, okay? Matthew eight twenty three through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and waves obey him? This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, as we look to your word this morning, I ask this one thing. Would you show us who Jesus is? And would you show us where our faith is not in that Jesus, but in some imaginary Jesus that that we've concocted. And so, Father, by showing us the true Jesus from your word, would you put our faith in him? Father, we ask this morning that, that we would have the humility as Christ followers to hear Christ's rebuke and take it to heart and that we we would have the, the joy as Christ followers to see the glory of our Savior in this passage and we would be in awe and we would praise him. Open our eyes this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a couple things couple themes that, that run through Matthew's gospel that I think many of you have seen as we've been working our way through it. One of those themes is the identity of this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. From the very beginning, Matthew 1, 1 and onward, Matthew's been showing us who this guy is. But, but the, the other theme is this question of what it means to follow him. This, this theme of discipleship. Last week, we saw both of these themes kind of running together as Jesus was about to leave Capernaum and he's preparing to go across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus said to those people that were, that were gathered around him that, that because he's the Son of Man, remember that? Because he's the promised King, the Son of Man. Because he's the promised Savior, as we saw the week before that, the claims of Jesus are, are absolute. To follow him is costly you must give up everything. Well, immediately after that, we get this storm episode, where we are this morning. But as we get to the storm, Matthew is, is kind of continuing to unravel this discipleship theme for us. 
So, so I want, before, before we get into verse 23, I want us to look again at verse 22, because these go together. Start reading with me in, in verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And then verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. You see how those fit? Jesus commands these men that are specifically called to follow him. They heard Jesus' teaching, and they hear his command, and what do they do? They follow him. These men were told that to continue to follow Jesus, they must be willing to leave behind comfort, they must be willing to leave behind family obligations, and they do it. They follow Jesus. He's already, back in Matthew 4, I don't know if you remember this, but he already called them to leave their jobs. They're fishing there, and he says, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and they leave. Now he's calling them to leave their families, and they do it. It's like, if you can imagine, you're going to climb Everest, and Jesus has been walking with them on that way, and now they're at the base camp. So they've been walking for days. You know, they've been following Jesus all these for this entire time, and now he's turning to say, I'm going up this mountain, and there's no oxygen, and you won't be able to breathe, and you might freeze to death. Follow me. And they follow him. You know what we call this? We call this the, the power of the call of Christ. Remember when Jesus speaks as shepherd, his sheep hear him. They, they hear his voice and they follow him. They don't follow him because they're robots that are pre-programmed to follow Jesus. That's, n- that's not how the call of Christ works. The effective call of Christ affects the heart in such a way that we see the truth for what it is. Our eyes are given sight. Our hearts are softened to beat with His. The deafening sound of our own sin is silenced and we hear Jesus clearly. And as we come to understand that Jesus is worth following... We follow him. We grow to see him as more desirable than the things of the world, even the good things. And so we follow him willfully, but as a result of his effective call. The disciples have heard the challenge. They understand the risks, but they want Jesus more. And the thing is, at this point in the story, they don't. if you're following the story... They don't even know who Jesus is yet. We'll see that pretty clearly in this morning's text. They don't fully understand who Jesus is, but they follow him anyway. And right off the bat, Matthew shows us that following Jesus is exactly as Jesus said it would be. It is teeming with difficulty. Look at verse 24 with me. And we'll actually connect the verses by starting with the end of verse 23. His disciples followed him, and behold... There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Do you see how the two are connected? They follow him, and the storm comes. Following Jesus means you leave behind the comforts of home, you leave behind your family, and oh yeah, by the way, welcome to the Sea of Galilee like you've never known it. Out of nowhere comes this massively violent storm. Waves are coming up on the sea like someone has just taken the corners of it and and whipped it by its sides. 
The waves are crashing over the boat. The, the, the waves are going so high up that, that when, when there were, the boat's in the trough between the waves, you can't see the boat. They're crashing over it. The, the, the picture that Matthew wants us to see is that this is unlike anything they've seen before. The waves are taller than the boat. And the reason the disciples are experiencing this storm is because they're with Jesus. Had they stayed home in Capernaum, they'd be safe and sound in their homes, wouldn't they? Following Jesus is the reason that they're in the middle of this storm. So, so right off the bat, as soon as the story begins, we know that the point of this story is not that Jesus will calm the storms of your life. That's not the point. That's actually the opposite of what Matthew wants to show us, isn't it? Matthew wants us to read it this way. To put it, put it lightly, following Jesus does not mean you are safe from storms. Or to put it probably more directly, for those who are ready for the challenge, following Jesus is likely to lead to more storms. This is like Matthew has given us a, a Surgeon General's warning. We should, we should put it on the back of every tract that we hand out. Okay, And it's true, isn't it? This warning plays out over and over and over again in the book of Acts. As you follow through the New Testament and you see the book of Acts unfold, it's proven to be true. This is not a simple life. It's also true throughout church history. So it's not just the New Testament. It's not like, well, there's the New Testament, and that was a special kind of era in church history where people had difficulty following Jesus. It doesn't stop there. I think, I think we miss out on seeing that the real picture of this reality when we fail to study church history. John Knox, I don't know if you know him, he's a Scottish preacher during the Reformation. He was arrested for his faith. And he was forced to row in a galley ship for the, the Catholic French Navy. And he literally endured storms aboard a boat because he refused to renounce the true gospel. He insisted on following Jesus because he had heard the powerful call of Jesus. And as a result, his life was filled with adversity. And he'd be the first to tell you that following Jesus is not a storm preventative. Once he was freed from that slave galley, he went right back to preaching and again came under fire. Again, he had to get aboard a boat, this time willingly, but to cross the English Channel and escape persecution. So he's a free man, but he's under persecution. He's under duress. Well, he finds safe haven in Switzerland with the reformers there, but his mentor there tells him, he can't stay. He'll train him, but he can't stay. It's kind of like that, that saying, ships in harbor are safe. You know that one? But that's not what ships are made for. For Knox, following Jesus meant going back into the storm. So Knox returned to Scotland to proclaim the gospel. This is the Christian life, if we're faithful. The Spirit wants us to see here that when Jesus calls you to follow him, he's not calling you to safe harbor. He's not calling you to safety. Not yet. 
not in this life. He's called you, and he's equipping you to be uncomfortable and to be tossed about. The disciples are are, are one part of the story that Matthew wants us to see. That, That right off the bat, following Jesus is going to lead to this type of difficulty, and greater difficulty, as we'll see later on. But that's one part of the story. It's not the main part of the story. Jesus is the main part of the story. So let's, let's get back to the text and see what's going on with Jesus. With this storm in particular, the waves rise up, the winds rise up. But where's Jesus? He's asleep, isn't he? Look at the end of verse 24. What's he doing? He's sleeping. If you remember from last week, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But this promised Messiah is making do with a boat in the middle of a storm. He's, he's sleeping. This is the only place in the Gospels where you see Jesus sleeping. The, the only time, if you, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you won't see Jesus sleeping again. But right here, he is. And, and part of that is just, it's kind of a, just a part of the story. This is a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. One. Jesus the Christ, the promised king, he told us he has no home. He lays his head wherever he can, and that's what he does. He does exactly what he said he'd do, but there's, there's more to it than that. I think that we need to see. Jesus was a man. He started the day preaching. He wrapped it up healing and exercising demons. And then there's more teaching. And because he's human, he's tired. And because he's tired, he sleeps. Jesus is human. When he's hungry, he eats. When he feels overwhelmed, he withdraws to be alone. When he's sad, he weeps. Jesus is a man. But we're supposed to see more than that here. His sleep in the midst of the storm tells us more about him than just his humanity. The disciples could have told us any other time that Jesus slept to get across that message that Jesus was a man. But they want to show us that this was the time that Jesus chose to sleep. His sleep is meant to reveal his faith to us. In in, in Psalm 3, you don't have to turn there. I think I have it on screen. David is writing about this time where he had to escape his son Absalom. Absalom was trying to kill him. Everybody's always trying to kill David. Absalom wanted the throne. He's trying to chase David away. David's in hiding. He's got enemies all around him. At the beginning of Psalm 3, David says that everybody's trying to kill him. And this is what he says. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. and He answered from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See what he's saying? How is David able to sleep? Even in the midst of trouble, he trusts that God will sustain him. And because of his faith in God's providence, he sleeps. He sleeps because he knows it is God who sustains him. He says it again. It's not the only time. In Psalm 4, 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David's faith, his trust in God, has 
it, that is what helps him to sleep. It's directly tied to his sleep. Same is true for Jesus. The promised king from David's line trusts in his father so fully and so dependently that sleep comes easy to him, even in a storm. Jesus knows this. He knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem. Right? That's the end of the book. He knows where he's headed. And he knows that when he gets there, he's going to climb onto a cross, or rather be put onto a cross. And so he knows that he can't drown in a storm. That's not his purpose. It's not his mission. And he trusts in God's sovereign plan so faithfully and so dearly that he knows the storm is not the end of him. The Father has it under control. The storm is more like a lullaby. Sleeping and trusting the Father are our soul sisters. They're always together. If there are things that you're anxious about, things that are outside of your control, things that are God's to take care of, to concern ourselves with those things means that we'll have to be awake to continue to be concerned about them. You see, see how that fits? It means that we have to be like God. We have to try to be like God to concern ourselves with the things that are in His area of control. And so that's what we do. And that's, what, that's what lying awake at night with anxiety is doing. Trying to, to care for things with the power of our thoughts. Something that only God can do. And it never, ever, ever works. If David can sleep while people are trying to kill him, if Jesus can sleep while he's being tossed about in a storm, and he's probably soaking wet and cold, and he's sleeping... I think we can trust that God is going to take care of whatever it is that we're awake at 2 a.m. worrying about. Can't we? Well, the contrast to Jesus is the disciples. It's always the contrast in the Gospels, isn't it? Jesus on the one hand and the disciples on the other. The disciples have followed Jesus onto the boat. They've been with him all day. They're just as tired as he is, but they don't sleep. I get, I get that somebody has to pilot the boat, but, but not all of them. A few of them can sleep, but none of these guys are asleep. They're all panicking. Look at verse 25 with me. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Do, do, do you feel the, 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 the panic there in their voices? Now, Galilean storms aren't new to these guys. Remember, most of them were fishermen on this same body of water long before Jesus called them. They, they know these waters. They know every cove. They know every ripple. They know the weather patterns. They know the prevailing winds. They know where the fish hang out. And they, they, they know what to do when there's a storm. Usually. But not this storm. This is, this is some sort of storm that they've never seen. And they're thinking, this is it. This, this is how we die. And and here's where the story kind of gets interesting. This is where I was kind of troubled for a few days. Look again at how they wake Jesus up. It looks pretty good. They call him Lord. That's respectful. Right? And then they tell him to save them. Well, so do we. Right? 
And it's because they think they're dying. Lord, save us. We're dying. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Right? They know that this storm is some kind of supernatural. They, they believe that they're going to die. So who do they go to? The one person that they think can save him. From our perspective, as outsiders looking in, it's hard to see anything wrong with what they've done here. It's hard to see anything wrong with their response to their circumstance. They're fishermen. They're sailors. And when the storm is too difficult for them to handle, they turn to Jesus. Not because he's an expert sailor. He's not. Right? He's a carpenter. He's a, he's a, a landlubber to them. In any regular storm, he would just be in the way. Right? So if you're, if you're piloting a boat, any reasonable captain would tell them, go below deck and take a nap. Get out of the way. Let the fishermen, let the seamen do the work here. A carpenter would be useless. But they go to Jesus. They call him Lord and they beg him to save them from what they believe is certain death. Now, I don't think they know exactly how Jesus is going to save them. But from what they're saying, it seems like they believe he can seems okay to me. And it would seem like at that moment, Jesus could just get up and and calm the seas and the story would go on. But that is not what happens. Look at verse 26. Jesus sees more than you and I do, doesn't he? He sees past their words. He sees into their hearts. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O you a little faith. Their panic has revealed their fear, and their fear has revealed their hearts. And Jesus is seeing in their hearts this broken faith, this insufficient little faith, as he calls it. It's a disordered faith. Now, we can understand this two ways. Because one, we have to understand Jesus' rebuke is right. Right? So we're not going to question Jesus's answer to them here. We have to realize, submit ourselves to Christ and say, okay, Jesus, what are you seeing here? So two things are possible. Either, either one, they're simply not trusting that God will sustain them in this storm, same way that Jesus is trusting God. Or two, they're calling on Jesus, but Jesus can see that they don't really trust him. I think both, there's some elements to both of these that are true. There's a clear contrast between Jesus' trusting ability to sleep in the storm and the disciples' panic. Right? So, so it's clear they're not trusting God. But, it, but it's also true that, that their call on Jesus could be disingenuous. Remember this same day? Back on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is to say, not all who say Jesus is Lord are really trusting that Jesus is Lord. So already we we should have kind of pinned to the side of of our thoughts here this possibility that their, their confession is insincere. Not all who say that Jesus is Lord truly have faith. And and also during the same day, after the Sermon on the Mount, we have this, this Gentile centurion. Do you remember him? We were introduced to this this man whom Jesus marveled at because of his faith. 
He, he had a great grasp of who Jesus was. He believed that Jesus had immense authority, and with the power of his word, even at a distance, he could heal the servant. So those are two events from the day that we're to, to remember as we get to our text this morning. I think what we're to see here is that the disciples don't yet have that centurion type of faith. No one in all of Israel had that faith. And here's the disciples. They think they're trusting in Jesus, but Jesus is showing him, you're not there. You don't quite yet recognize me the same way that that centurion did. They they know that Jesus can somehow help them, but their fear reveals this broken faith. Their fear reveals that they want Jesus to rescue them from these circumstances, but that they doubt his power and authority. All right? Now, there is a fear that reveals faith. A rightly oriented fear of God actually reveals faith, doesn't it? The fear of God reveals that we believe our lives are in God's hands. The fear of God reveals that we believe God is just and righteous and that He shows mercy on whom He shows mercy. The fear of God that comes from faith rightly orders our hearts so that when God reveals His grace to us, our faith is in Him and we depend on Him. God is glorified in this type of reverent, holy fear. But that's not the type of fear that's going on here. This isn't a fearful faith. Jesus makes it clear that these disciples are fearing wrongly. Their cowardly fear proves that their faith in Jesus isn't like the faith of that centurion, the one who knew that Jesus was divine. Their faith is more like, it's more like the way that you would trust a mayor to help you when there's a, a, a worldwide stock market crash. You know that the mayor of your little town has more power than you do. And you know that you have access to him. So you can ask him for help. You may even sincerely want him to help. But deep in your heart of hearts, you know that the mayor is powerless to solve this worldwide crisis. There's times like this when we say we're trusting in Christ... We call him Lord. We say we want him to save us from whatever our situation is. But our fears reveal what we truly believe. Our fears reveal where our faith is. Think of this. Think of how sometimes we say we trust God to provide. I trust God. I trust you, God. You're going to provide just as you promised. But I'm going to hedge my bets and not give. Or how someone who is single and wants to be married says he trusts that God will provide a spouse. But then just in case God doesn't follow through, he pretends some woman on the internet is his spouse. Or how often are you afraid of what people would think of you if they knew you were a Christ follower? And so you try and cover up your Christian identity. We'll talk like the world to hide our identity. We'll act like the world. Whatever it takes to fit in with the world because we're afraid that somehow Christ isn't enough. We're hedging our bets. When we fear people,
people. Or when we fear the future, when we fear poverty, when we fear sickness or nature, when we fear anything more than God himself, we're revealing a lack of faith. It's to say, God, I believe that you are some sort of great, but this issue is greater. It's more than you can handle. It's, Lord, I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, but I'm bringing back up. This is the type of faithlessness that Jesus is rebuking his disciples for. Are you seeing it now? It it took me a while this week as I was reading and studying to see what is wrong, what's going on here. And a lot of times it takes just reflecting on your own heart. When are the times when I have told you, Lord, I trust you, and called you, Lord, and said, save me, but I hedge my bets? And I think that's what they're doing here. But he doesn't just rebuke them and then go back to sleep. Does he? That's not our Savior. Look at verse 26. Let's finish reading the verse. He rebukes the disciples. Then, much like the storm arises from the sea, Jesus rises to challenge the storm. He rebuked the wind and the waves, wind and the sea, and then there was a great calm. The wind stopped. The waves stopped. The sea is still. Everything is still. It's like glass. Revelation 4.6 says that before the throne of God, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And here is the divine Son of God who has spoken a word, and the wind stops, and the sea stops, and the sea is like glass in front of him. The wind and the sea have heard this voice before. This is the voice that brought them into being. This is the word of God in the flesh. And all over the Old Testament, I mean, countless places. These are just a few. If I could share with you the the texts back and forth between Saunders and I this week of all the places that we're seeing God controls the sea, it, it... it would be instructive, but there's other things in those texts that you shouldn't see. And so, <laughs> and so here we are with, with the ones that I think are the best, and let me share those with you. Isaiah 51.10 says that it is the strength of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, who makes a safe way for the redeemed to pass over the depths of the sea. Think about that. Jeremiah 31.35 that famous chapter about God's new covenant and how he's going to care for his people. In that chapter, Jeremiah reminds us that it is the Lord who controls the seas. Everywhere you go, when you see God's sovereign care for his people, you see that God controls the seas. Job 26.12, it's God's power that stills the sea. Psalm 29.3 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Psalm 65, 5, our call to worship this morning, says that God stills the roaring of the seas and the waves. Psalm 89, 9 says of God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104, 6 says God covered the earth with the seas, talking of creation, and the water stood above the mountains. I should remind you of Genesis 1. And then the psalmist says, and at God's rebuke, rebuke, There's that word, rebuke, just like Jesus did. At God's rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of God's voice, the waters took flight and the land came forth. Or how about Psalm 107 that Amy read for us earlier? In verses 28 and 29, it says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, 
and the waves of the sea were hushed. How is that not exactly what happened? Jesus did that. Jesus spoke and the winds and waves were stilled. I hope you see what the Spirit's revealing for us here. Jesus can do this because Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh. Do not miss this in this passage. Jesus is Creator God. He has authority over all creation because He spoke it all into existence. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. John 1.3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, including the Sea of Galilee, including every waterway there is. It's no wonder then the disciples' response. It's no wonder. Look with me at at our last verse this morning, verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds in the sea obey him? Think of the progression of Matthew's gospel. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when he healed all those people? And and Matthew showed us that Jesus is the suffering servant who's come to take away the sins of the world in Isaiah 53. And then last week, how Jesus is the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one who will one day sit and judge over all. And here, now Matthew is showing us very clearly, Jesus is Creator God, the one who spoke everything into existence. What sort of man is this? Just a moment ago, he was sleeping. And, and now he has command over all creation. The the wind and waves know exactly who he is. Next week we'll see that the demons even know exactly what sort of man this is. But the disciples don't know yet that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. At the beginning of the story, they followed him. At the end here, they're in awe of him. From, From their question, though, we can tell that they still don't know his identity. I mean, it's clear. They're asking the question. They still don't quite know, but they are with him. There they are. They're learning Jesus as they go. Friend, that's what a disciple is. It's all a disciple is. It's a learner of Jesus. They follow him, not because they have it all together. They follow him because he's worth following. Because he's called them. And so they desire to follow him. I want to encourage you this morning. If you're not a Christian, and the reason that you're hesitating to follow Jesus is that it's just you just don't feel like you know enough about him yet. Look at the disciples. Because they're, because they're on that side of the cross, they're before the cross, and you're on this side, did you know that you actually know more about who Jesus is than they did? 
You have the entire New Testament at your fingertips. The entire Bible. You know that he came to take away your sin. They didn't know that yet. You know that he died for you. They didn't know that would happen. You know that he rose from the grave to prove his power and give us hope in the resurrection. They didn't see that coming. They couldn't conceive of it. You know that he is the promised Messiah and the creator of all things. You know that he's Lord over all things, if you're reading. They only had a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Just a glimpse. You know far more. And yet they followed him. And you're hesitating. Why? What's the hesitation? If you don't believe it, like you think this is just a fairy tale, that's one thing. But if there's some measure of intellect that you think you need to follow Jesus, or there's some measure of perfection that you think you need before you can follow him, listen, it's okay to not fully know what you're getting into when you step into the boat with Jesus. Follow him anyway. You will learn him as you go. None of us has got this down pat. None of us. We are relying on Jesus' work. You may not see that. I'm still having my eyes opened up to who Jesus really is every time I study the Bible. Like these disciples, I'm still being convicted of my lack of faith. And, And everyone who calls themselves a Christian and who really is following Christ, that's happening to them too. Growing in our understanding of Christ and turning from our own imaginary versions of Him, that's what it means to follow Him. And the more we see what He's accomplished for us, and the more we see who He is, the more we want to follow Him. And the more we desire Him, the less we desire the things of the world. See, the Christian life is not about Arriving. It's about waiting on the arrival of Jesus. And in the meantime, growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. In fact, I'll close with this. Peter was on that boat. Do you know Peter? He was on that boat with Jesus. He was a man who was right there and didn't understand Jesus yet. He would continue to struggle with fear all the way through his life, all throughout his life. He would struggle with fear as he learned Jesus. In the last line of the last letter that we have from Peter, he gives us this command. He says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow. It's a command. Grow. Which means you follow him and you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Come to Jesus and learn of this man. He is our God. He is our creator. He is our Savior. Would you pray with me?